How many come from a family where you're the oldest sibling? Lift your hands. All right. Several of you bossy people. I get it. Um, How many are youngest children? That would be me. Us spoiled kids, right? And then uh, how many middle children do we have? You guys are awesome. You're the peacemakers, right? Studies show that oldest children tend to be um, more organized, and they tend to be more rule followers. They tend to be a little bossy. Amen? Like, it's true. Youngest children tend to be a little more free-spirited. That's (laughs) life of the party. But we're also a little spoiled, right? We, We think it's all about us, right? And then middle children tend to be peacemakers, and they adjust and adapt. And your birth order really does play a a big impact on your life, your personality, how you see um, people, and and, and how you do life in general. So this morning, we're going to look at a parable about a family, namely a father and, and two sons. And a parable is a form of teaching that Jesus used where he used short story, a short story to share a deeper truth. There was something behind the story that he wanted his audience and us today to understand. And the story is the parable of the the prodigal son. Now, how many of us in this room or even watching online know someone who used to follow Jesus, but are no longer following Jesus. They used to say they were a Christian, but are no longer. Probably every single one of us would lift our hands. We know someone who used to say they followed Jesus, but for whatever reason, got disillusioned or hurt. Often people stop following Jesus, not because of Jesus, but because of Christians, because of the way Christians treated them and and get disillusioned in that. We often call this parable the the story of the prodigal son. The word prodigal means reckless or extravagant. But as I study this and have read this story over and over, the more and more I realize that the, the star of this parable is not the prodigal son and it's not the older brother. It's about the father. Jesus' intent is that we understand the heart of his Father and our Heavenly Father. Philip Yancey, anybody ever read any of Philip Yancey's books? If Just me. Okay, you should read Philip Yancey's books. They're really good. And um, in, I think it was the book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he, he said this. He said, Jesus didn't give the parables to teach us how to live, He gave them, I believe, to correct our notions about God, about who God is and who God loves. I think that's important. Um, The context of the prodigal son story, Jesus is around tax, he's around sinners and he's around tax collectors and the Pharisees and the religious people are like judging him bad. Like how dare this guy, this rabbi hang out with such terrible people. And before he gets to his third parable in, this, in Luke 15, he does the parable of the lost sheep where he talks about how a shepherd would do whatever it takes to go find that one, one sheep and then the woman who lost a coin, she would do whatever it takes and, and then 
the, the story of the prodigal son. So it says this. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. To illustrate the point further, verse 11, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So that his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. He didn't just give the inheritance to the younger son. He gave them to both. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Let me tell you a quick story. I remember in high school being at downtown at the 16th Street Mall, and I saw a homeless man going through a trash can, and he pulled out um, a carton of milk that had some milk in it, and he began to, to chug it. And I was like impacted, like this is how desperate this guy was for any kind of sustenance to, to, to drink out of a milk carton that had been in a trash can for who knows how long. That's where this guy's at right now. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here, I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast." For this son of mine was dead and, and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry. And wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I have slaved for you. And never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. In all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. You celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look dear son. You have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost 
But now he's found. What does Jesus want us to learn from this parable? It's important that we we capture the heart behind this. And I think the very first thing Jesus wants us to learn is he wants to change my concept of God. He wants to change our concept, how we view God the Father, how we view his Father. Some of the different ways that people have this view of God, you know, from other religions or or ideas. Even the Old Testament, right? Like, when you read the Old Testament, it's like, uh, really? Like, I mean, God's good and gracious in the Old Testament, don't get me wrong. But in the Gospel of John, who John is an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he says in chapter 1 that no one's ever seen God, but God the Son has explained him. So even Abraham, Moses, David, they never saw God. They didn't have a full understanding or comprehension or concept of what God was like. Jesus came to clear that up. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen what God is like. So when you look at the very life of Jesus in the gospels, that's what the father is like. All this other stuff, if it doesn't line up to the life of Jesus, then we have the wrong understanding of what what God is like couple things about this. Number one, our concept of God has been shaped by our own experiences and the influences of others. Like our concept of God has been shaped by our earthly fathers. Thank God for me, I had a great father figure growing up. And so I never struggled that God was this distant, out there, disinterested father. My dad, I knew, was, I, knew I was a priority to him. And it's made me, help me understand that I'm a priority to my father. Now, not all of us have had my, the grace that was upon my life. Some of you had absent fathers. Maybe you didn't have a father. Maybe you had an abusive father. And that's caused you to project that onto our heavenly father. It might be harder to understand that. A lack of a father figure. How many know like, buffoons father figures on the tv is what they want people to think dads are like these buffoons that are just goofballs that uh, you know don't project what a real father is supposed to be so we've had bad examples and we've had bad teaching a lot of people have been taught all of their life that god the father is this angry grouchy out to get you man if you get out a line boy i'm gonna dang but jesus protects us from from this angry father right jesus like no father i love them so i want you to love them that's hogwash jesus is telling us what the father is truly like in this he wants us to know that so he came to clear up that misunderstanding and he's using this parable as well another thing is about our concept of God is Jesus is describing God in a way that was new to his audience. New to his audience. And you know what? It might be new to you as well. You may not see the Father as someone who compassionately loves you, who is a lovesick father. In this parable, we see a lovesick father waiting for his son to return. He loves you. The Father is glorious and powerful. No questions asked. But guess what, though? He's compassionate. 
He's glorious. He's holy. He's all of the, the, the attributes that we, we give him. But he's compassionate. He's humble. When the father in this story is running to the son once he sees him, that is a, a thing of humility. In that culture, for a man to run in his tunic made the possibility of him to show his shins and ankles as he ran, which was a cultural no-no. A man didn't show his, his, his shins and so forth. So he was running with his holding his tunic. <laughs> and, and so he's humiliating himself. But that's the heart of the father is what he's trying to say. And he comes and he, he kisses his son when he sees him. That's that tenderness of the father. Tenderness. Parents of, of kids who have, have had sons or daughters who have left, so to speak, maybe relationally, emotionally, maybe literally, and all they want is for their kids to come home. It's all they want is come home. Come to your senses. Come back home. And why is it that it's so much easier for a parent to welcome home a wayward son or daughter than it is when your spouse fails you? And I think it's because when you see a baby come into this world and you, it's helpless and you nurture this baby and you bond with your baby and, and you watch it, he or her grow, there's, there's just this grace that is incredible for your children. Now, it's not that you shouldn't have that for your spouse. I'm not saying that at all. You should, but there's this thing in us that's like, mm, you should know better, spouse. Like, you're a grown person. But there's this bonding with our children that they could do whatever, and you say, come home. I welcome you home. That's what's kind of going on here. Jesus wants us to understand God as father, not as grouchy and distant. And maybe you had a grouchy father who was distant, but that's not our heavenly father. Secondly, what does Jesus want us to learn? He wants to change how I relate to God. He wants to change how you and I relate to God. He wants us to see ourselves in this story. There's a couple of twos going on here. We have two sons. There's two sons, the younger and the older. And here's what you and I, if we're going to get the most out of this, this story, is we have to realize there's a little bit of, of the younger brother in all of us, and there's a little bit of the older brother in all of us. That's, that's the facts. It's a compare and contrast type story. It's birth order dynamics, but it's also see yourself in both of these sons so that you can see the heart of our Heavenly Father. So we got two sons, and then we got two, two perspectives. We have self-centeredness and self-righteousness. And what Jesus is doing here is he's redefining sin. We tend to think sin is just what the, the younger brother did and going out and wasting his money on, on, on debauchery and partying and wild living and all of that. When Jesus is also exposing the sin of the, the older brother, that's internal, his, his legalism, his religiousness. When it comes to self-centeredness, we see the audacity of the younger brother, the disrespect, the arrogance. When he said, can I have my inheritance? He basically looked his dad in the eye and said, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, I could have my stuff. And so he begins to 
pursue this life of, of independence. I want to be independent of you, Father. So give me what's mine. I know when I went through a season like this, I can relate to the younger brother. Some of you might be hard for you to relate to, but you'll probably relate to the older brother if you can't relate to the younger brother. But when I was college age, uh, early 20s, I, I, uh, I tried to follow Jesus, quote unquote, in high school. And then I remember I couldn't live up to what I thought it meant. It was probably the older brother in me that, that was religious. And so I began to just say, Lord, you know, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to live a double life. And I went all in on the, the party world and the party scene and wild living and all of that and chasing my own dreams to the point where my heart didn't get completely hard overnight, but little by little, it got harder and harder to the point where I remember one night shaking my fist at God, saying, I, I don't need you. He could have struck me down right there and been, <laughs> been just, but he didn't. He probably was like, oh my gosh, man, <laughs> when is this guy going to come around? But he drew me to himself through his compassion at the age of 25. And I look back on that to my shame and going, what were you doing? What a dummy, you know, to shake my fist at God. He's not real. I got it all figured out. I didn't have anything figured out other than I was a knucklehead. And maybe you've been there. So that was that self-centered part, but then there's the self-righteousness Two of the older brother. There's two ways of self-discovery. We can, uh, self-centered people are trying to be in control of their life by being their own boss. That's what, I'll be my own boss, then I can, I can be in control of my life. Self-righteous people do the same thing. They try to control life by following the rules, by having good behavior. If I'm good and I follow the rules, then I'm, I'm going to be right. Both are totally wrong ways. Then you have two approaches, two approaches which are reckless and religious. The younger brother was reckless. The older brother had this religious approach. Reckless lifestyle is, this is my life. I don't care. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get mine. It says he spent everything, every last penny of his inheritance he blew before his dad even kicked the bucket. He spent it all. Anybody remember, there used to be a show on like the music channels called Where Are They Now? And uh, they would follow like often, like I'm a child of the 80s, so they would take the 80s rockers and they would go back and look at the, the height of their, their money and their, their fame and their fortune and their number one hits and all that. And then 20 years later, where are they now? And so many of them had blown all their fortune and they, they just life, they, they, they thought they were on top and they spent everything, had nothing left to show for it. That happens in sports a lot too, where these young guys get these enormous contracts for playing sports and then they just, just blow it, blow it, blow it, cars. And it's crazy. Like when we were in the Dominican Republic several times, but I remember the first time we were there and there's a guy named Robinson Cano who played for the Yankees and the Mariners and made so much money. And we would drive by his house in this gated community to the hotel that we were staying at. And he had just in this particular house, like six 
fine cars, like we're talking seventy to a hundred thousand dollar cars just to play with and a whole entourage and I hope he's saving his money and has a good agent or a good financial guy because he's just making it rain. But then you have the other side of this is you have the older brother with this approach of of a religious approach. And it's this, and maybe you've been here. God, if I obey the rules, then you owe me. God, if I do what you say to do, then things are going to go my way, right? God, I prayed. God, I did what you said to do. And then all of a sudden, when life doesn't go the way we think it's supposed to go, we get mad at God, just like the the older brother did in this story. But God, I obeyed you. We have to be careful of that mindset as well. So there's one mistake made by both. Neither one of them wanted their father. They both wanted something from him. They didn't want their father. They wanted something from him. Religious and and moral people can be avoiding Jesus just as much as the rebellious, sinful younger brother in this story. Because both are distant. Both are not pursuing the father. They're pursuing some way of, of, of trying to get God to do something for them rather than pursuing God themselves. To be lost is to not, to not know your way home. To be lost is I don't know where I'm at and I don't know how to get to where I, I want to be. I don't know how to, to get home. And a lost person is, is trying, to, as they try to find their way home, both the rebellious or the moral person can be equally lost in the sense that morally good people are going the wrong way home and the rebellious person is going away from home. Neither are finding home. Now the good news is the gospel tells us how to come home. And we come home through Jesus. He is the way to the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but through Him. He's the way home. So thirdly, I think what Jesus wants us to learn from this parable is this, that he wants to change my understanding of grace. He wants to change your understanding of grace. God's grace is extravagant in that it it goes beyond what is deserved or even justifiable. The father said, grab a robe, the best robe, grab a, a ring. Let's have a feast. Let's treat this son who squandered all I worked hard for, squandered half my 401k on wild living, but let's treat him like royalty. That's grace. That's gra- I'd be mad. Who would be mad? I'd be like, boy, come here. <laughs> here's here's a, a, a good reminder. Mercy is treating someone better than they deserve. Grace is giving somebody something they do not deserve. Mercy and grace go hand in hand. Mercy is someone deserves to be treated a certain way, but you don't. That's mercy. Grace is you don't deserve this, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. That's what's going on here. Now, the younger son, as he was, remember when he was feeding the pigs in the field 
and he comes to his senses and he begins to to rehearse his his sentence stuff he was going to say to his father he knew what was awaiting him as he was going to return home in the the culture that that Jesus is teaching here in the Jewish culture there was something called the kazaza ceremony and what the, the younger son knew what was probably going to happen to him was this ceremony where a member of the community would meet him before he could get it to his father's home and he would have a clay pot in his hand and that member of the community would stand at the foot of the younger the son who had rebelled and he would smash that clay pot on the ground at his feet and he'd say you're not welcome here you've broken community you've broken your father's heart you've you've brought shame upon your family he knew that was coming that's why he said well I'll have this story ready that, hey, I know I'm not worthy to be your son. Can you put me up in the bunkhouse and let me live with the other hired hands, so to speak, and at least I can have a job. You don't have, you're not going to call me son. I know that. He was prepared for this. And yet Jesus is trying to show us something amazing here. He thought he was cut off from the family. And this, the father with this kazaza ceremony, he... He didn't want anyone else to be the first to meet his son. He was going to be the first one to meet his son. That's why he ran. He knew the religious leaders and and, and the legalists were going to have a different story. And he was going to be the one to be the first one to say, son, I love you. This son of mine that was lost has now been found. And as I was praying through this, I thought, Maybe there's some folks in our church that have experienced, you're not welcome. You're not welcome in this family. Maybe in your, in your own family. Maybe you've experienced this, you're worthless. You're cut off. You've gone too far. Here's good news, if that's you. That will never, ever, ever be the response of your heavenly father to you. Never. In Psalm 51, we're told that God will never reject a repented and contrite heart. He'll never do that. You never see it anywhere. You never go too far, so to speak. The Father is always there. All are welcome at the table of our Heavenly Father. How many know that's good news? That is good news. You are welcome at the table of our Heavenly Father. Not just because he tolerates you, but because he loves you. You're his kid. You're his child. And as I was praying through this, I thought about coming home, this idea of coming home like the son did. Coming home is a one-time deal in a sense that you come to your senses and say, Father, I'm coming home to you. I'm sorry. I've been living on my own. I've been trying to be my own boss. And yet, it's also a daily, weekly, monthly experience of coming home to the Father. Because, I don't know about you, but I fail daily, right? Hourly, maybe? <laughs> and it's, it's always coming back, Father, I'm sorry. And he's always saying, come home. It doesn't mean that when we, when we blow it or when we fail that there's not consequences. There's always going to be consequences. 
But the consequences don't get the last word. The father gets the last word. And he says, come home. Let me ask you a question. Is God's grace amazing to you? Is, how amazing is it? Is it amazing every day? Are you blown away at the grace of our Father? I think sometimes we take it for granted. I do. But then when you begin to reflect upon what Jesus has done for us, His grace is amazing. If you want to know what grace is, and if, it's, if grace is giving something to us that we don't deserve, read Ephesians chapter 1. I've said this about 19 times in the last year. And Terry Opeka told me she's memorizing Ephesians chapter 1. Because Ephesians chapter 1 is the gold mine of grace that God has given us in Jesus. Everything that's Christ's is yours. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. All that is His, He says, here, I'm sharing it with you. How many know that's grace? You know what your job is to? Access it. Believe it by faith and access it and live in it. Repentance is truly just a change of mind. It's you're walking away from home and you go, ah, turn around, go home. That's a daily moment by moment experience for all of us. We're going to sing a little bit of the song, Good, Good Father, if you'd stand with me. And in a minute, we're going to take a moment and we're going to pray for folks that have wandered away from home that you may know in your life, whether it's family, friends, co-workers, and that we're going to pray for them to come to their senses and come home. Let's sing this together and then we'll pray.
Again, how many of us know someone who used to walk with Jesus, but is no longer walking with him? Would you raise your hand? We all do. Um, I've asked Jamie Pander um, to, she wrote a prayer. And all of us who know someone who used to walk with Jesus and who's no longer there right now, they've drifted from home. You are going to be a representative on their behalf this morning as she prays the prayer that she wrote out. And so if that's you, you know someone, would you just put your hand on your heart? And as she prays, let's be believing God to draw these folks home. I surrender, Lord, that you know what is best for me, for the son you let me raise, and for the daughter you let me love. I remember vividly the day we learned we made a life together, the worries that suddenly flooded that I might not provide a good life for him. Oh, how I wished I was a better daughter to my own mom and dad, and how I wanted to do all better than they. We see ourselves in our children and lament that time is a one-way street. We think we can stop them from finding their own way by shoving a map in their face, not realizing that my map is for me and no one else. How quickly I forget your mercy for me, your faithfulness and your patience. But you're the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So why do I struggle to trust you to take care of my son? You gave me a son to love. Help me do just that. Help me have compassion for his journey. Help me remember my son is your son. God, Lord, I thank you for trusting me to raise him the best I can. How I worry I will fail you. And how I worry I'll be judged for his choices. But Jesus, you're not worried. You already saved us. You're so not worried, you're preparing a party, a feast, a banquet. So why are we so resistant to trust your goodness and just willingly walk through that door? In my little world, I love my family, my friends, my acquaintances, and sometimes even my enemies. And on my best days, I want everyone I know to come to your feast. I don't want to be alone in heaven. Please help my heavy heart learn to trust you. And as I talk to you, Lord, I think of my friends and how they're probably like me. They worry about their son, their mom and dad, their favorite cousin, their best friend. We all have a prodigal son in our life and beg you, Lord, to convince them, convince them to come to your party, please. They don't know what they're missing and I don't want to miss them. Help me know as hard as I try to show you to them, you're trying harder. You love them more and you truly know what is at stake. All I know is you know, and I trust you to bring everyone home. If you're patient, Lord, I will be patient. If you're at peace, so am I. Jesus, I ask you to teach me to follow you and to model to your children to simply do the same. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Deniable, I can hardly speak. 
to everything you need is the love of the Father. It's healing for your soul, healing for your mind, healing for your relationships, healing from your past, healing from for the present stuff that you're going through. God the Father loves you. God is love. It's not an attribute. It's who He is, is love. Work everything backwards from, his, from who He is. And receive of his love every day. Wake up in the morning. Father, I receive your love. As you go about your day, Father, I receive your love. As you hit the pillow at night, Father, thank you for your love. It's what all of us were made for. And he wants you to live in that. So, Father, we receive your love this morning. You are a good, good Father. Lord, we've given over to you the people that are, have, have wandered from home. Lord, we trust you to bring them home. Give us wisdom in that area. And Lord, as your kids this morning, as your family, Father, we love you and trust you. Jesus, we agree with you that you're Lord and Savior of all and that your Father is good and your Father is now our Father. Thank you for bringing us into your very relationship with your Father. Help us to live in that, to breathe in that, to enjoy that to your glory. We love you, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.